venture capital on easy mode or what looked like easy mode is over, right? But it was never there in the first place. The difference is when you think about like what's going to happen to VC is like VC like became an asset management business, right? Which let it scale a ton more than it otherwise would have. Would let thousands of people work in it that otherwise would never have worked in VC. And it really actually kind of became like shitty banking, right? It was like e- it was like easy banking of private companies. All those people are going away, right? But I'm fine. You're fine. If you're a serious investor, I think that like thinks about this stuff strategically and actually likes the fact that this isn't cookie cutter capitalism. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have a round two with Sam Lesson. Sam is a general partner at the early stage VC firm, Slow Ventures, an essayist and also a podcast host. Our last episode with Sam released back in August on why the factory model of venture is dead was hugely popular in large part because of Sam's unorthodox takes and unfiltered delivery. Today, Sam returns to talk about why VC won't be the same in 2024, the future of capital intensive businesses, upcoming workforce shifts and investment opportunities across crypto, reputation systems and media. It's a great one. Here's our conversation. Cool, man. Well, excited to do another episode. Our first one was our most popular episode we've done, aside from our first episode with with Ben Horowitz. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I'll tease you by saying you're the VC, uh, VC doomer. Let's summarize the argument. Basically, what you say is that this factory model of VC is over. Uh, basically, this idea that you could that all these companies are going to be valued at way high, you know, multiples that are, that are insane that they can, you know, raise, you know, raise the seed that then raise, raise their A to then raise their B to then raise their C, et cetera, and then go public at an insane valuation and everyone can get liquidity all along the way. Yeah, it's over. Look, here's the deal. We VC is always the whole point of VC has always been high risk innovation capital. We don't know what the fuck's going to happen. There's a small number of people who are willing to put a relatively small number of dollars to work in a spectrum of capitalism, right? Trying to figure out things. What's going to be the next big thing? You usually lose your money. Sometimes you make a lot of money. That's a great business if you're smart and interested and et cetera. It, by the way, it's not the best way to make money, right? To be clear, like venture capital is great. But like, if you want to make a ton of money, like scaled PE banking, better businesses, right? Like you do it because you love it. You do it because you care about creation, all that, all those fun, nice things, right? Over the last 10 years, something changed dramatically in the model, right? In terms of how people thought about it. And what basically happened was two things. One is with SaaS and a bunch of other things with, you know, Andreessen's great, you know, marketing of software eats the world. We went from this idea that like this was innovation capital, right? Some things would work, some things wouldn't work. It was kind of a cottage industry. And do no, 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 no. In the next 10 years, we're going to mint in unbelievable numbers of 10, $20 billion companies, right? New ones that are going to outcompete every legacy company, right? And there's going to be the whole sea change. And candidly, the idea became, hey, we kind of know how to value and build these things. So it was, okay, we know what the public market wants. They want 10 to $20 billion high growth, you know, things that looks a certain way. Then you kind of back into what a series D looks like and a series C and, you know, kind of work it back through the factory. So you know what you're trying to produce at the end of the line. And what happens is, all these funds and all these people kind of self-organized into this industry that was all feeding this public market endpoint, right? Turns out 
that when la la capitalism ends, right, with zero interest rate phenomenon shit, and we're back to how things actually work, and you think about the economics of all of this, it turns out that the public market doesn't want that shit anymore. There's a bunch of reasons for it, right? Like, one is it turns out that the big tech platforms take a ton of the returns, right, in technology. There, w- there are moments of disruption we can get into. There have been moments of disruption. It's not like there's never disruption. But, you know, you look at mobile, you're like, who wins for mobile? It's mostly existing companies just win huge, right? It's not like new entrants. It's not constant disruption, right? So, like, part of it's the big guys take it. Part of it is Chamath spacked a bunch of crap. Right. And so people are like, public markets don't want that anymore. And they got kind of burned by it. Part of it is that, you know, private equity, the private side of VC got so big, they've hoarded all the winners. So like the good companies like Stripe, they're like, we're going to keep those and we're only going to like put out the crap. Right. And so the public market's like, I don't want any more of your shit. Right. And it's kind of rippled through the whole industry. And so what now happens is all the nice markets where you knew if you made a million dollars in AR and looked like this in a SaaS business, this was your valuation. You could trust that your employees could trust it. You knew how to raise money. Like the entire like easy, venture capital on easy mode or what looked like easy mode is over, right? But it was never there in the first place. The difference is when you think about like what's going to happen to VC is like VC like became an asset management business, right? Which let it scale a ton more than it otherwise would have. Would let thousands of people work in it that otherwise would never have worked in VC. And it really actually kind of became like shitty banking, right? It was like e- it was like easy banking of private companies. All those people are going away, right? But I'm fine. You're fine. If you're a serious investor, I think that like thinks about this stuff strategically and doesn't and actually likes the fact that this isn't cookie cutter capitalism, right? This is like a different style, which by the way, again, I want to be really clear. You do great. I do great. Everyone's doing great. It is not the best way to make a dollar in the world in finance, right? It's just the most interesting. <laughs> yeah. The, um, it's interesting, you know, Charlie Munger recently, recently passed. And, you know, some people say that, he, he, you know, they of course made a ton of money, but some people say that they bet on kind of anti-tech or they bet on things not changing. They, they bet on businesses that, that stay the same over, over decades. Um, to, to your point of, uh, you know, um, you can make a lot more money betting that things might stay the same rather than betting that. Well, they just, they basically bet on living a long time and the idea of compound interest, which is great. Good for them. Like they're, you know, compound is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Totally. So, you know, VCs have had to become macro thinkers over the past, uh, you know, year, year or two where perhaps they didn't but previously. So describe the mechanism exactly of how low interest rates or VC on easy mode leads to um, massive public companies, like, or, you know, the public markets valuing these companies at super high multiples. What is the exact connection between that? Well, I mean, the, 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 there's a few things to it. And again, like these, these, are, these are not complicated points, right? This is hardly being a macroeconomist. This is just very simple supply and demand shit. It's like when interest rates are low, there's a lot of money looking for returns, right? And so where does that money go? It goes further and further out the risk curve. It looks for weirder and weirder shit in places to put money because they can't make money, right? When you're making lots of money on money, like why bother being risky, right? And so what does that push out the risk curve look like? It means that like there's tons of money like floating around, right? Um, they can't figure out how to make more of itself. And so it goes to venture capitalists. They're like, oh, I know how to make more of it, right? And then, you know, even in the public market, there are plenty of investors who are like, look, I don't, I can't make money owning this, you know, equity, right? I'm willing to take a bet on something that's going to grow really quickly or is really small because like, again, like what's the worst that happens is like, I lose my money that wasn't making any money, right? So it just basically makes everyone more risk seeking up and down the chain. It means there's just more money to go around, right? 
because the other part of it, obviously, which is like a little more obtuse, but not really is like, you know, if you can borrow a bunch of like, if someone's like, Hey, you can borrow money at 0%, you borrow a lot of money, right? Then there's a lot more money to go put into this shit. When someone's like, Oh, it's going to cost you 10% to borrow money. It's like, it's just rational. Like you borrow less money, right? Or you have to have more certainty before you're borrowing. Right. Um, so it was really, we all know this is like obvious and people knew it then, right? It's like, we're playing with house money. Right. And like, we were the beneficiaries of that in like dramatic form. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it's been interesting to see it all, you know, kind of reconcile as it has been. And, and what's cool is like, look, there's carnage, but like good companies are still good companies, right? Like there's carnage on the margin and there's a lot of margin just as like in VC, there'll be a lot of carnage among venture capitalists that weren't very good venture capitalists, but like, you know, if you're good or doing a good job, like you're fine. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to botch these numbers, but James Courier was telling me something like when he started as an uh, associate in 1995, um, there were like 300 GPs or something. And now there's like 30,000, uh, just to talk about sort of the, you know, orders of magnitude of, uh, you know, expansion of. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I don't know. And this is not to, this is by the way, not to like shit on anyone, even though it's kind of fun to do on a podcast. Right. But it's like, here's the reality. Like, you know, I, I don't, my version of that is, you know, when I was first exposed to any of this stuff, I was like, in my mid twenties in New York, right? And New York had like two venture firms, right? It was like USV existed, Betaworks existed, RRE Ventures existed. It was like maybe there was five, right? And um, I was weird because I had interned at a venture capital firm, right? So I was like this young person, and there was not a thing that happened. Um, I went to an event recently in New York, and there was like hundreds of young VCs, and I'm like, what are you guys like? Who are all these people? To be clear very lovely people. I bet some of them are really good, but like, there's just a lot of people who's running around town with checkbooks. Right. And like, you know, if you think there's infinity, good companies to found and infinity, good entrepreneurs and like every company in the world's going to disrupt it and every industry, there's a new tech 20 billion fine. But like, that is not the way the world works. Like at any given moment, there's going to be at the, like the tech platform level, a tiny number of important companies and then what I do think is interesting is there's a ton of really interesting stuff going on, you know, in the small business world and things like that, things I'm actually really into and been investing in. Um, but it's certainly not people who are sitting there doing market maps of software companies and then trying to jam checks into them. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the, the, the sort of franchises and creators st- stuff in a, in a, in a bit, but just to put an emphasis on the, on the point. Okay. So public markets aren't valuing these businesses any, anymore uh, in, in the same way that they were. Um, but also you mentioned, Hey, this isn't as disruptive an era as people, um, as people imagine. And a lot of gains are going to Microsoft or meta, you know, where, where you used to work. People love disruption, 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 disruption. Look, here's the reality. Like there have been major moments of disruption in history, like PC, major fucking disruption. You get Apple and Microsoft, $3 trillion companies, right? Like internet, Disruption, like fundamentally changed who the winners and losers would be and what the value of different competencies was. You get, you know, you get obviously uh, Amazon, you get Google, you get Facebook, Meta, like you get that kind of generation of companies. By the way, it turns out the PC guys, everyone's like, they've been disrupted. It's like, no, they haven't. They just got bigger, right? Like, and now you, then you had everyone's like, mobile is disruption. Like, is it? Like, Uber's clearly a mobile company. That's like a hundred billion dollar company. That's cool. It took a lot of money to build. Right. Um, you know, but it's not that big snap, Twitter, WhatsApp. Yeah. Snap, 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 like snap is like barely a company, right? Like Twitter, 
is like fine, but like we're not, you're not like iconic tech platforms. Like they might be iconic consumer brands, but as businesses, as capitalists, but they're not a hundred billion dollar company, let alone say. Yeah. Not even close, right? Like Snap is like small, right? Like, you know, it's like I, I briefly owned Snap stock because I got when it was private, because I, I, I lost I had momentary doubts of my over overly concentrated meta position. And I was like, I need some diversity. And like I don't know, I sold it like pre-IPO and like I think it's still below its IPO price, right? Like so it's like it's not that there aren't things, but like and that's fine. If you're the founder of Snap, great. But like as an investor. Unless you're in the seed, that's a tough deal, right? Like, um, so I just think it's like you know the, these things. It's not that you don't get new cool tech platforms, but you're not necessarily like blowing it out where there's going to be another major platform every you know every X years. You know, like, like VR may or may not happen. The winners will be the big guys. Like AI, it is so obvious that the big companies are the big winners, right? Like anyone who doesn't, I've been saying this for a long time, but like if you don't believe it now, like you must live under a rock, right? <laughs> No new hundred billion dollar companies in, in AI. Um, no, no, not even let alone trillion. I mean, it depends how much inflation we see. Look, I mean, I think OpenAI might be the one exception that sneaks through. I'm not sure it does. I mean, the reality is, even so, it is still a small startup. It's kind of quasi Microsoft now. And the reality is, is like, you know, you know, you watch Gemini come out. You look at all these things. Everyone's got their image creator. It's all pretty commodity. So, like, is possible, right? But like there's not going to be another three, right? Like it's like the, the table is set at the high end. And it is interesting to think like OpenAI and presumably couldn't have happened without Microsoft. And it, it, it's possible that it wouldn't have happened if Microsoft wasn't concerned about antitrust stuff. It is interesting how, um, you know, much how these opportunities are enabled by these incumbents not wanting to seem threatened by, um, you know, uh, by litigators. Well, that's a whole other story, right? That's several different podcasts about what you can and can't acquire and how that changes things and dynamics in the startup world. But yeah, man, it's like, look, AI is sweet. VR is potentially sweet. These are all big company opportunities, not small company opportunities. So what's the next disruptive uh, sort of platform or, or window? It's crypto, man. It's been crypto all along. It's always been crypto. It's it's like the this is the holiday special. It was you all along. It's crypto. And like even crypto, you know, where we've done a lot of that we've and we've I think been been so far right in some pretty cool places. Look, here's the reality. Crypto is fundamentally disruptive to the way banking infrastructure works today. It is a different way to think about markets. There's no easy way for the existing system to just subsume it and adopt it, right? Like if it happens at scale and as it becomes meaningful, it changes things. That's what disruption looks like. Now, here's the reality. Is crypto going from being a great idea to being super mainstream? You know, it's been fast and slow. Like Bitcoin awareness, pretty fast. Bitcoin ownership, pretty fast. A lot of the kind of stuff on top of that, kind of annoyingly slow and going from theory to reality. And what's happened in the interim? All these big companies, even JP Morgan Chase, will talk at one one side of their mouth is this shit sucks. We hate it. Other side is they're absolutely working on it and building it and subsuming it. And so the the interesting thing to crypto is like there's a race between new things that are more powerful and free of kind of that legacy becoming dominant versus smart big companies being like, we also should just adopt the best parts of this or adopt enough of it to make changing not worthwhile. Right. So like that's like. I do think it's crypto, but I do think there's a path in which even crypto will certainly have its place in the world at some raw level, but like will be less disruptive 
to JP Morgan than you would have thought it was going to be five years ago or 10 years ago. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. So let's say we're, we're doing another one of our podcast bangers like a decade from now or 15 years from now, 20 we years. Almost from now. certainly will. Exactly. Have you gotten to the point where you're just on my calendar as podcast? I'm like, <laughs> sure. I, you know, like, well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's say that there's a hundred billion dollar company in crypto, let alone, you know, multi hundred billion dollars. Like what would that look like? Or where would that be more li- likely to emerge? Like I- imagine it. Well, look, my speed bet Solana is already a f- more than a fourth of the way there. I mean, I think like, look, to me, to get to $100 billion is a lot of fucking money, right? Like, that's not a small amount of money, just to be clear. Yeah. Yes, math. There's only very few. So that's an extremely high bar. But I think when you think about like that, that is a platform scale business, right? That's not like I built something cool that I own, right? Like, and I think when you think about what those have to look like, they do have to have broad value. They do have to be understandable. You know, you're not going to find platform businesses that a human being can't articulate what they do, right? I think is generally true. Like you can find $10 billion businesses in some niche esoteric thing that has a way of making money. But when you're at real scale, you kind of need to be in like the Maslow hierarchy of things humans can understand, right? Not just like bank shoddy, weird proxy blah blahs, right? So it has to be understandable. It has to be touchable. It has to have lots of opportunities. It has to enable a lot of other businesses, right? And be like an ecosystem, I think, to be at that scale. So, yeah, I mean, like, look, again, I've, I, this is no secret. Like, I have my bets on the table. Like, I think Solana is incredibly well positioned to play that role, right? As an ecosystem and as like an L1. Um, will there be other things? Sure. Like, why not? Right. But like, that's like when you ask, like, what's the easy answer? It's going to be like the platform level stuff. Yeah. Let, let, let's get into also how um, this new era changes sort of uh, norms around what investing looks like. And, and one of the things you mentioned is, hey, um, founders should invest as if it, it might possibly be their last round. They shouldn't just assume that they can just, you know, keep, keep raising. W- what does that look like practically in terms of how they think about liquidity um, and talk about the new normal there? Look, I mean, from my perspective, the most easy to digest or simple version I would call out on this is just like, look, you know, see, I'm a seed investor. That's what I do, right? People come and pitch me things that don't exist or barely exist for a few million dollars. That's all I can give them. And for years, the pitch was always, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to have these numbers. And we're like, yes. And those numbers allow you to raise a series A. And it's like, I need a million dollars of ARR and like retention to look like blah, blah. And like people come in now and pitch that. And I'm like, my eyes glaze over. I'm like, I don't know. No one knows what the market is and where it's going to be. And like, what is the fundamental value story? You're going to spend my money, which is really, let's be honest, my LP's money, people that I know I report to. And at the end of it, ideally you have a viable, good business, right? That like every dollar after that is optional. It doesn't mean you don't take money. It means you don't have to take money. It's like, you see an opportunity to grow faster. Great. Raise some money. Like you don't, don't dilute me. Right. And like, so I'm always like, well, how much money do you need to build a good business? I don't care about this next round, right? And that actually might be more money. It might be they're like, well, I thought I needed to $2 million to get to a million dollars in ARR. But I'm like, but I don't care if you get to a million dollars in ARR. No one does, right? I'm like, what do you need to be a good business? And like, well, I need four. It's like, great, let's come up with a deal that makes sense to get you there, right? But I don't want to, you know, I need to, I, the thing I'm trying to produce, and I think as a founder, the thing about producing is like, how much money do you need to produce a thing that is like 
obviously valuable and good that's going to be able to ideally self-sustaining, right? And then you figure out how to scale it from there, right? I think there's this old meme that like, you know, to be derogatory, investors would be like, well, that's a lifestyle business. That's not a real business, a lifestyle business. And like, there's such bullshit. It's like the idea that like, you can't build a good business on the way to building a great business. I just... I just really disagree with. Right. And so, you know, I don't, I think, um, I think it's like very bad old thinking and I think it's much better for entrepreneurs to be like, how, like, you know, these spaces are, spaces are big. I'm excited. I'm excited to get up every day and do the job. Right. Like I'm not building this as a business school case. I'm dealing it because I want it or I believe in it. Right. Then you kind of bolt on like, well, how big can I get? Right. Um, not the other way around. Totally. And in, in, we talked about in terms of what not to invest in, you know, we mentioned um, a- AI being a bit of a mirage or red herring um, in your view. Um, but you also mentioned um, capital intensive businesses, right? There was a, a, our very smart friends, you know, building things like Oscar and forward and healthcare or open door. We work in, in real estate and, and, and just examples of capital intensive businesses that maybe made sense in a prior era or didn't. Well they, well, they may look. They may, I actually think so. You know what? A, ca- a good capital intensive business can make a lot of sense for people who have tons of money and get paid to deploy that money, right? Like if you have, it's hard to deploy a lot of money. So if you have billions of dollars to spend, right, you can't go and buy like the nice things in the store. But you have to buy everything, and so ideally, you can like expensive things are good for you, right? If you're like, I can put in a billion dollars and get two back. Well, that's a billion dollars in cash return. sounds great, right? So like, I think there was, this, there was this momentum to convince founders to do things that like were actually quite good if you have a ton of money, right? As investments, but like diluted the shit out of founders, right? Like wasn't a great strategy and ended up wasting a lot of money. And so again, like I think there's, there is such thing as being so frugal, Right. And like so cash constrained in your approach that you don't do obviously good things. You don't invest when you invest. You do need the money to invest. But like, again, remember, like everything you spend time on or build, you're either spending like investor capital, which is dilutive to you. Right. You're spending effectively your equity in some form, which is dilutive to you. Or ideally, you're spending customers' money, which is great, right? Like, because like that can just regenerate on its own, right? As long as, you know, it's obviously margin positive, right? So like you want to be, you want to get to like the non-dilutive financing part of life as quickly as possible. Yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that people need to keep into account is sort of uh, cultural changes that have emerged uh, since COVID. Why, why don't you unpack some of these, uh, some of these changes and how it, uh, how it impacts me. Look, I think that um, Silicon Valley is like dominated by like cult thinking, right? And like cults in all sorts of ways, right? It's like, and like those cults are like obvious ones and then they're less obvious ones. And people talk about impact or like changing the world. Like, you know, it's like, oh, don't show up for a paycheck, change up to like change the world, right? And like, I think what happened in COVID, I do think it's a really a COVID phenomenon, two things. One is like, it's kind of like you, if you keep doing something the same way every single day, you don't question it. The second you get like shaken, you're like, oh my God, like, wh- wh- whoa, like, was that what I wanted to be doing? Two is like, people have this space to experiment in all sorts of different ways to live and like what the good life is and like what they want to spend time on and how they want to behave and interact and things like that. 
And so everyone's like, oh, we can't get people back to the office. Like, yeah, because people don't want to go to your office, right? Like, and like the number of companies that can really be mission driven, they like, you actually are doing something really important. It's small. It's not zero, but like, guess what? Most things like don't really matter for the world, right? Like, like your SaaS workflow tool is a SaaS workflow tool, right? Like you're, and like, I think there's a lot of people who thought part of the Silicon Valley thing is like you buy into the importance of everything and be like, nah, you know, like I think there's a good business here, right? I want to live my life differently. And so I don't think, look, I think it's actually quite healthy in a lot of ways. Like I don't think this is like a negative thing, but I think people just like COVID opened people's eyes to a lot more options. And then I, I think the other thing is like it shook up the chessboard so much in terms of winners and losers that everyone's like, oh, this game can be kind of stupid. So like, you know, if you think about it, like you are day one of COVID for whatever, you're in a type of company, you have a million dollars of stock options, you know, two years in that million dollars of stock options for some people is 10. You just like randomly got super rich. Like you happen to work at zoom, right? For other people, like they're like, that company's definitely valuable, but like it just got sideswiped by COVID and got a business. Like once you go through that enough times, it's not that you don't want to work. It's not that you don't care about these things, et cetera. But like, that's such a weird, like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I don't just put one foot in front of the other, right? Like there are other factors in life. Life has randomness to it, things like that. I think it just changes how people want to live and what they want to focus on, right? So for me, I think one of the big manifestations of that is I do think you're seeing a lot of people are like, look, I want to do good work. I want to have impact in my community. I have a very hard time like convincing myself of the cult's this SaaS tool matters story that gets me to go work at the SaaS tool company and work a billion hours a day. Right. And if talent flows in different directions, like different good stuff gets built, you know? Yeah. It is interesting. Just one side note, VCs make money investing where other VCs aren't, you know, or where, where, where it's not obvious because then price isn't bid up. VCs are supposed to be contrarians. Why are all of them sheep? <laughs> or not all of them, not, you know, majority of them. Well, because they're not, because most VCs aren't real VCs. They're just asset managers. Right? Like, you say most VCs make money on contract invest. No, most VCs actually don't make money. Most VCs just collect fees, right? And like put things on paper that look nice that are private markets. And especially that's true of non GPs, right? Like, so, you know, non GPs. So I don't know. So I think the reality is, I think the first thing to understand is like, yeah, yeah, most VCs, it's not that they're not trying. Again, like, I don't want to, there are exceptions to every rule. There are smart people, blah, blah, blah. But like the, you know, that 30,000 GPs or whatever, like most of them aren't making money. And the way they're getting paid is just for managing zero interest rate money for a few more years. They're not actually like making anyone money right now where to be. Then the question is like, how do you make money? Right? Like, there's so many different ways to be a VC, right? Like there's no question that if you have a big checkbook and like your version of VC is like Hollywood Wall Street VC where you want to go and like elbow out the other people and like, you know, I don't know, like agent style, like get in there and get the marginally better deal. And then you're right enough. Like there's a way to operate that is profitable and like, there's a way to do it. I mean, it's certainly not how I do it, right? Like, I, you know, I'm at the extreme other end of the spectrum. And then, like, look, I feel my oats right now. Like, I'm, like, kind of 10 years-ish into being a professional, quote-unquote, VC. I'd done a bunch of angel deals before that. But, like, the first place I, like, took a paycheck from as a VC, let's call it a decade at slow, about that, is, like, I've now had enough wins at the combination of being very different and then being right enough 
that feeling my oats, I can be like, ah, like that's the way to do it. But like, look, I might not have another good deal ever. Right. In which case, you know, I'll be like, ah, like I wasted a lot of money. Hopefully I still have made a lot more money than I lost, but still, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's very contextual. Yeah, it is interesting. I, w- I wish I had that, um, luxury in the sense of when I look at the things that, that have done well for me, it's hard to find a, um, constant theme. So, some of them were hot deals. Some of them were deals that no one wanted to do. Some of them were first time founders. Some of them were re- repeat entrepreneurs. I, in my personal, in my personal experience, both as an individual investor, but then as a professional VC, you can make a little bit of money in the consensus stuff, right? I've made a little bit of money. Like you do fine. You know, you put in your 25 K seed check, you get a little bit more out, right? Like it's a buddy, buddy deal. Fine. But like the only way to make real money is to be betting big, not even big, just differently. Right. Um, the thing that I have not figured out in my VC career, and maybe I will never figure it out or maybe I will is the things that I'm really proud of. They have enormous multiples on them. Right. But they're not huge checks because I go super early and like, I can have some conviction, but I'm not, I, you know, the, the, like, I don't know, learning how to go big, and early versus just early, I think is like tough. Now the good news is, is like multiples will swamp everything else as long as you don't have a ton of dilution. So you still make a bunch of money, but like, you know, it's like, that's how you make insane amounts of money. And I, I'm just not quite there yet in my career. Yeah. So if you're not betting on content, you, you're, you might do the next Facebook, you would know much better than me at how contrarian it seemed at, at the time at, at, at the earliest stages, but you wouldn't do something perhaps like Stripe, which was, I think the seed was bid up at a crazy valuation because they were, you know, hot, hot founders already at, at the time. Yeah, I won't do Stripe. And look, I mean, I, I talk about Stripe. It's like, I remember distinctly when like Square was raising their first money and I think it was like a 40 or something. And I was like, literally with people, I was like, that is stupid. Like, that's just an insane, there's no way. And like, obviously 2020 hindsight, that would have been a great deal to do. Right. But like, I guess I just, I don't, I'm not a specialist in those, right? I'd like to say that I'm a specialist in paying small amounts of money for really interesting people doing really different things where like they might be right, right? And they might be capable, right? Let's get into some of the areas where you are excited about. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is in, in your fantastic deck that people should check out, we'll link to in the show notes, is the small business platforms, the revenge of Main Street. Why, why don't you talk about that and companies excited about there yeah look i mean i'll I'll talk about it from two angles one is like historically talk about unsexy things not to invest in the story has been no one like small business is a thing that like venture capitalists don't give a shit about right they want peter Thiel monopolies right and small businesses are like the opposite of that right but the reality is it's an enormous part of the economy that's been totally disregarded and the reality is is that small business operators aren't as stupid as people think they are, right? Like the story was, oh, these are like super tech illiterate people flipping pizzas or something. And like, but look, the reality is like there's generational transition of a lot of those businesses. You know, a lot have been wiped out by big box things. A lot of them haven't, right? And the ability to go in and like help them level up or help them do more, help new people start small businesses, I think is like everywhere, right? And so, you know, I got I got religion about this because of one of these crazy early weird bets, right? You know, I seeded this company Team Shares. I'm super psyched about, um, which has bought on the order of a hundred small businesses in the last few years and is operating the better, just like doing an amazing set of things with them. Um, you know, and I, I put the first check into that at like a four and a half post. You know, like and like you know, it's it's crushing it, and so like that kind of exposed me a little bit to this, not just theoretically but practically. And now it's like. 
you know, we're looking at franchises, I think are really interesting. Most VCs hate franchises. We love them. So we have franchises, bring them to us, right? Like all sorts of like interesting models that tend much towards more towards small business. Um, you know, so I think there's a ton of interesting stuff there, but it is, it's very different than the traditional VC. I'm going to write five lines of code and try to wipe out, you know, a hundred thousand jobs. Right. Yeah. And when you say when you say franchises, do you uh, do you mean both the software that supports them and the underlying franchises them, themselves? I mean both. We underlying franchise. We've done. Un, we're doing under things that we think are underlying franchises, right? But like the software, there is software componentry to some of them, or software to, like pieces to it. We wouldn't not look at software around kind of better operating small businesses, but it's really. Um, it's that type of stuff. And then it's also like weird stuff. Like I, my, my partner, Will Quist, this is not a deal I had anything to do with, but I think it's a cool one. You know, we, we did this deal, Metropolis, right? Great parking um, software, basically help you optimize your parking lot. Turns out, talk about small businesses for a whole bunch of structural reasons. Like sometimes industries aren't disrupted because there's some structural reasons. Like you see them like, this would be much better if we did it this way. Like, yeah, but there's a reason that in 2023, it's still that way, right? And there's some really interesting go-to-market structural problems with parking. So these guys just b- raised a billion dollars and bought a huge parking operator. And now they're going to make it super more leveraged. So there's going to be more interesting, creative ways to operate, right? When you say like, okay, for those types of industries that kind of have harder configurations to sell to, right? It's like another really interesting set of things to look at. Yeah. And when you say underlying franchises, are we talking like... Uh, you know, I, when I think franchise, I think like McDonald's or like, you know, re- uh, fast food, like, um, like, uh, well, hey, here's what I'll say without giving away too much. I'm like literally closing one today is like, I don't think we're going to be very interested in like McDonald's 2.0, right? Like that's not like a thing that we care about or we think there's a ton of leverage in, you know, people have made money in that type of stuff. Like, I think I could tell you, I could make up a story and pitch it to you, but it's not, it's not a thing I would care about for me. It's actually more of this. Here's the model I have. I think, you know, Oh, Software, quote unquote, eats the world or the era of software. It's funny. It's made a small number of people insanely rich. But like, actually, the reality is, is like, it's actually wiped out a lot of pretty rich people, right? That have like their own self-determination and do pretty well. It's like, it has really dropped the middle out or the upper middle, I should say. The middle is probably not a fair thing to talk about. I think for the next decade, the number of opportunities and talk about franchise being to help people be entrepreneurs, to help people get to the point where they can make a million dollars a year reliably, right? Like that is like something I actually think socially is incredibly important for the country. Like we need a bunch of people who make a million dollars a year and can trust they're going to make it and can invest in their communities and feel invested in America. So like believe there's a social mission. I also believe that like there's all these talented people that if you can create opportunities for them, that right size them feeling great as entrepreneurs that like you can make a ton of money and build really powerful platforms. And so for me, it's like, it's almost this like lost segment of people. Like or here's, here's a good tweet on it, which is like Uber took all these people that kind of thought of themselves as independent business people. Like they had their taxi medallions, whatever. And they're like, Hey, you're an entrepreneur. But by being an entrepreneur, they meant here you're a 1099 worker right? It's like the opposite of being an entrepreneur. Like, I think the like the backlash of the next step will be like, how do we create more entrepreneurs? Like not like Silicon Valley style ones, like real ones who like make businesses and own them and they're proud of them. And like, I think there's just, when I think about franchises, it's those types of business in a box opportunities where you're like, you can leverage the sweat, the passion, the talent of someone who's not doing the passion thing of like, I'm trying to change the world 
through micropayment bullshit, but they're like, no, no, no. Like I actually like, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm trying to change my world. I'm trying to change my family's world. I'm trying to do something I'm proud of in my community. Like there's just a lot of talent there that is, I think probably under allocated. And so I just want to impale that. And to me, when I think about franchises, I think about opportunities to give those people businesses in a box ish, right. Or opportunities that meet their interests and their community's interests and like help make them comfortable and rich and proud, you know? And do franchises go public? Like, is that the idea? Do they sell? Do they just distribute dividends? Or how do you think about that? Like the the master plan, like the actual business. Yeah. I mean, like, look, I think you're asking, you're asking a fundamental liquidity question, right? Which I think is an interesting one, which is like, so cool. You built this thing and you empowered thousands of people to be owners of businesses and it makes a bunch of money. Like what it's like, I don't think the public market is like the be all end all, especially these days. Like the public market in a lot of ways is dying, right? It's like there are fewer public equities now than there were 20 years ago. You know, it's a weird configuration. We all know about the alternative asset classes that have sprung up. You know, there's the whole world of PE where PE firms used to only sell to the public market and now they just sell to each other. So like there will be liquidity for quality businesses. I'm like not concerned about that personally in the future, but I do think we're in a very amorphous state where I think, again, the cookie cutter VC thing of the last 20 years is you package this thing and then you sell it to the public market and Goldman Sachs advises you and it's a $10 billion company with upside. And I just, I just don't buy it anymore, right? Like I, it will happen to be clear. I'm not saying, but like as my life target of what I spend my time trying to do, it's just, eh, you know, like. The other, are there other options besides M&A? Well, it depends on you define M&A. I mean, like one of, I'll tell you, uh, one of my favorite companies to like think about and learn from is Constellation Software in Canada, right? Which has been buying a bunch of software and doing like a really interesting, almost Berkshire Hathaway roll-up strategy for stuff. Like there's stuff like that. Someone has to buy your equity, right? You can do secondary tenders forever if you have buyer. Like it's not like, you know, the idea that you invest in a business and because you're a venture capitalist, you're, you can't really take the dividends, right? Like, we can, you know, like someone has to buy it, but like, it doesn't have to be the public market. Although again, like there's no reason for it not to be in some cases, right? Yeah. Do you, we talked at the beginning of this episode about incumbents just getting stronger and stronger. Microsoft thing is over th- 3 trillion. And th- it seems like these, these, these the big five or big seven or whatever, are only going to continue to get much bigger. Do, do we expect meaningful M&A and that to be like a, a viable sort of uh, strategy for, for startups? Yeah. No, I just don't think we need it. I just don't think we need it. Like, like I sold my first company to Facebook and I'm very happy I did. It was a great experience. Candidly, like I think everyone, like, 2020, great. It was like, fabulous. That was basically an aqua hire. Why? Like at this point, like no, there's no talent that's that unique or special, right? Maybe some random AI researchers in some crazy lab will figure out some way to replicate that. But like that era is over. Tech is everywhere. There's lots of smart people that work in big companies. They have access to whatever talent they want. Um, and interestingly, in AI, side note, it's like the best people want to work with the best resources and the best data. So like they're not hanging out in garages, like fucking around building iOS apps, right? So like I, I just don't see that. I mean, the regulatory thing is a big challenge. Um, but I, I just think like, look, in the end of the day, it's like, will there ever be, of course there will be, but like the idea that that's like a pipeline as opposed to like, it just happens sometimes and the big companies are doing what they do, I think is kind of more the norm, you know? And look, the AI stuff again, like, I'll tell you a funny one. Like you see this chart the other day about how many H100s different companies have bought. Did you see this thing that was floating around? 
it's like wild. It's like Meta bought 150,000 of them and like Microsoft bought like 150,000 of them. You know, those things are big machines, right? Like, and I'm thinking to myself, where the hell do you put 150,000 like 600 pound computers? Like, there's just like a lot of shit. It's like kind of those scenes in Indiana Jones, right? When they're like the warehouses and warehouses of artifacts. So you talk about it not being a startup opportunity. It's like, no way, right? Like, um, at least not at that layer, right? Yep. The, um, yeah, but what do you say to this? Like, think about how much data, let's say in like healthcare, for example, that's not on the internet yet, or that's not legible to these big companies yet. Um, do you think there's enough sort of sectors or enough spaces where there's so much important data that is not yet out, out there? Um, that there could be hundred billion dollar companies around, or, or do you think that incumbents will just swallow that too? No, because people have like someone. The people who have access to that data are the big companies, and they're not stupid. And they're gonna like. I just don't. I think companies aren't as big companies aren't as dumb as people think they are. Right? They have other concerns, like they have other issues, and like they're blocked. But it's kind of like look. I started my job, my career at Bain and Company for two years. Right, and one of the most demoralizing things to like realize if you work at a consulting firm like Bain and you're young is you starting like, Oh, these executives have hired us to figure out this hard problem. And then you get in there and you realize they already know the answer. Like they're just there because they want someone to cover their asses nine times out of 10, right? Externally, politically. Now I'm being unfair as I frequently am. There are exceptions, but like, that's kind of the thing is like, if there are structural reasons, a big company can't do something fine, but it's not because they're stupid. Right. And so Look, will there be opportunities in AI? Of course. You know, people are coming up with these new crystal formations. Sweet. Protein folding, new drug discovery. Like, there's all this awesome shit. But I just think you have to think about if you're really into being a startup founder, like, it is almost certainly not your game, right? Yeah, totally. I, um, you know, one of your spaces we talked about last time is sort of, um, you know, creators uh, leveraging uh, their audience and, and content to then build other platforms and, and businesses on, on top of them. I'm curious um, to spend a few minutes thinking about you as, as a creator in the sense that you and your partner, your wife, Jessica, own the information, which is not the same thing as YouTube channel. No, well, she owns it. She owns it. She owns it. She owns it. Yeah, she, she, she owns it. Oh, sure. I'm just the intern. Yes, exactly. You're, you're an intern. Um, and it's not the same thing as a YouTube channel in the same way because you're, you guys are journalists and you have journalistic constraints. But imagine for, uh, for a second that you didn't um, have any, any constraints. And I'm sure you've thought about this. And I'm curious just to, to brainstorm because I'm also in the, in the media space and thinking about, uh, you know, uh, different business models. Um, and I've asked myself the question of, hey, if I owned, you know, TechCrunch and its heyday or the information or take or Forbes or w whatever, take any business, you know, great media business, um, what would I build on, on top of that? Would I build a, a LinkedIn competitor? Uh, would I build a Glassdoor, a, a GLG, Tegas, uh, Crunchbase? You know, that was on top of TechCrunch. Like, how have you thought about what data businesses work on top of uh, media company or what, what's the best business to build on top of media company? Well, here's what I basically say. There's a lot of people who are like investors and like, oh, you know, it'd be sweet is if I could end around all the media companies and just like tell my own story directly. Right. And you saw that like Andreessen tried that. And it's like kind of comical because like no one wants your marketing shill copy. Right. As like new, that's like you have no trust doing that. Right. Like it's like a terrible strategy and they basically have stopped it. Right. But they but it's I get why it's enticing. Right. As they basically say. You know, the information as a brand, I was thinking my wife's thing is like, look, um, that works because 
tens of thousands, like incredible people trust them to pay them a lot of money for subscriptions, many tens of thousands. And like more than that, read them with trust and they know what their intentions are and what the purpose of the business is. And like, they're pure to that mission. You know, the second you're like, well, I'm building this business to build this other business. Nah, like I, I think you end up really fucking up incentives and like, I think it actually destroys a lot of trust. So I'm not sure you can do that. I mean, it's an enticing thought. I get it. But I, mean, I do think like there are things you could think about distributing, right through a news organization just be like basically saying hey like i'm buying house ads on myself right like the next time we come in this podcast you know i will hijack it to pitch like a software project that i've been working on for fun and like it's basically i have my first two paying customers and like i'm having fun with it it's like can you distribute can you distribute um software through a good media are you basically lowering your cac Sure. But like, I think there's like a, it's a really interesting question about what you can and can't do and remain authentic to like your actual audience and mission. I get that you like the media stuff and putting yourself out there. It's probably pretty good marketing for your firm. Right. But like, there's a fine line on that, right. Before it becomes inauthentic for me, it's like, look, I like saying shit on the internet. I'm very careful to just like be myself because the second you start trying to like shill, you just lose all credibility. And also like, it's just like, doesn't land anyway. I, I think I'm curious. You're right. I, I totally agree with everything you said. Uh, information is the most you know, trusted uh, brand in media. It's got to keep it that way in tech media. And I think, I think you've seen that we've seen this rise of people like Lenny Rachetsky or Packy McCormick or Harry Stebbings who are doing something different, right? They're not outing, you know, scoops and, and, um, you know, sort of reporting news in the same way they're, they're doing kind of like trade media or they're, they're like helping product managers or VCs, um, get better at their jobs or, or they're hyping up and explaining companies. And they seem to have a lot of trust with readers, even though they're also explicit that they have like other business interests, i.e. they invest in the companies. And I think that's just interesting. Maybe the norms have changed where people are not, not they don't have the same sort of respect as the information has. Yeah. Look, there is no, there's no question. There's no question that we talk about creators and how we think about investing. I'm like, one, we do invest in creators constantly. They are the new entrepreneurs in a lot of ways. I like the idea that you have an embedded audience with a lower CAC in a specific vertical and trust, and they can love it. It's all, all true, all true. Um, you know, look, I think with a lot of those, like. The Harry Stebbings thing is interesting, right? He's clearly built like quite a brand for himself. I, mean, I remember when he was like, I think I was one of his first podcast guests and like he was like 12, right? And like it clearly he went after it and built it and like has figured out that it's kind of hard to monetize media. It's way easier to monetize a VC fund, right? And like if a bunch of LPs and investors and like it's founders listen to you anyway, it kind of maybe creates good deal flow for him. But it's interesting. Here's the basic difference I'd say is like a real news organization, like the information, like you have to actually trust it, right? Because it's going to report things and have sources that it can't disclose to you. So you like trust it. And I think that's just like different. So I think, look, at the end of the day, like VC, if there's 30,000 of them, it's competitive. I've had people say to me, like we have a podcast that's just for fun with friends. And like, I've had entrepreneurs say to me, hey, I really like your podcast. And you're like, it's really good for your business. And I'm like, why? Because it's really like not. And he's like, because... I just like your podcast and there's so many VCs and like, you're now top of mind for me. Cause like I listen to you once a week. Right. And like, so yeah, like I mean, you kind of want to be at the top of the wallet. Right. Totally. Yeah. And, and so 
these people have monetized via funds, but I'm curious if they could also monetize via like maybe the next Harry builds the next Carta or something, or the next Lenny builds the next, you know, software for product managers or something. Look, I told, look, I'm, I'm a, I'm a New York Jew from Northern Jersey who like sees all the same. I get it. I totally get it. Um, I don't, I think it is far more likely that like a, someone like that, like, builds an audience authentically and then like partners with someone on that. Right. Versus like builds it themselves. I like software too. I think it's fun to build way better margins than anything else. Right. Like, so it's very tantalizing to be like, it's tantalizing to be like, Oh, I'm going to like build the software that's cheaper and sticky and like, and the media, like, I just think it's in practice. It's certainly possible. And we believe the creator thesis, but I think especially in VC, I'm like, eh, is what I'd say. Yeah, it's tantalizing to want to be like an audience co-founder or something, you know, um, and uh, be able to get ownership in, in things that become you. Well, and that, look, to be clear, to be clear, like I do think creators in like weird verticals, like again, like take, you know, like we'll back people who do like really in the backyard barbecue or like lawn care, like these super niche things. The cool part about those people is they have the trust, right, in their audience. They have the ability at low CAC to reach everyone. And really interestingly, they actually have incredible ideas for their vertical because, like, you and I are not lawn care people, right? Like, we don't know, right? But, like, so, like, there's, like, a bunch of things rolled in there that are good. And, like, I, I really believe that that if you kind of take the long view, you're not backing any one project. But you look at the kind of the portfolio. Those things, people will wildly succeed. They are great new entrepreneurs. You know, I think on the flip side, you look at, like, a Jimmy, Jimmy, Mr. Beast, and you see kind of this interesting challenge, right? Because it's like, look... You know, with 2020 hindsight, would Mr. Beast have been a great seed investment? Of course. Entertainment's incredibly competitive, general entertainment. There's no specific real audience where you're like, oh, this they own this. It's just like broad entertainment company with all their broad entertainment. And you're like, well, what about investing in specific businesses? You're like, well, remember when Mr. Beast Burger was super hot? And then they were like, oh, this is both hard and like not only that, but like, well, it was like, I have a better business to work on, which is like his candy bar business so like you had like investing in one-off creator business is very difficult because if your whole bet is low cac right in an audience and it's all tied up in this one person and then like it looks really good because the cac is so low it's almost exactly like the fact that you can see things get really big when you have like you know with early days of social but they're actually not good businesses right is like i think the individual creator products are hard but i do think like indexing and saying hey you're a creator early in your career you're doing great. You've got real momentum. You have a clear, awesome audience you own, but you really don't have very much investment capital because even if you're making half a million dollars a year, when you kind of take out taxes and then all your payroll, whatever, you're not making enough to dramatically invest in yourself early. Let's give you 3 million bucks. You'll go faster. You'll get bigger. You'll have five more shots on goal to do really cool shit and build businesses that I believe in. Right. Yeah. Let- Let's end this podcast by talking about uh, reputation. It's something we've both thought about quite quite a bit. Um, first, I want to uh, briefly talk about LP uh, reputation because you've had we've had these interesting conversations around sort of your idea of hey, you know, people should know who, who who's backing LPs, um, or there should just be more transparency in the LP ecosystem. And I want to help bring that together. But then also, I'm just curious about your thoughts on reputation businesses in general, things like the next Glassdoor or the next G2 or or uh, Yelp for people, uh, or, or you know, in specific vertical or something it's a pro- look i've built so many versions of this when i was at facebook i built a whole project on this we never launched like i'm really the idea that somehow in people's lexicon 
identity, I ran the identity teams at Facebook, among other things, that identity is how you represent yourself, like, versus that's not what identity is. Like, identity is what people think of you, right? And like, yes, how you present yourself is a small part of that equation, but it's, it's like, it's a much broader, more nuanced ecosystem. It's pairwise, it's complicated. It's been very hard. It, reputation products for people absolutely exist. I mean, it's like the fundamentals of how human society actually works. And actually, a lot of what's get fucked up on the internet with crazy Hamas videos is like that whole reputation curve and how information filters through has gotten totally fucked up. So like it's everything. It's really hard to build products around successfully. And like the power dynamics of it are really challenging. You know, on the LP thing I have said, and I do, I mean, I obviously still agree that like the next time I take money or as I take money in the future, it's just like not, I don't want to take from people. I don't know what I'm pay, getting paying for. Right. Like I'm already in a position with our funds today, where given what's happened in the last, you know, six months or so, I'm like, I don't feel it's super great making money for these people. Right. And that's like American institutions. Right. Like I, I think that's like a thing that you as a, if, if someone wants to invest asking that question and being disciplined about it, I think is great. Then you get into the other question you asked, which is like the graph. Well, here's the problem. Like how the LP index, that's a really valuable resource, right? And like the warm intros in particular are super valuable, but even like knowing who's good and bad, like that's IP, right? And so look, the reality is, is like, you can look at LinkedIn and say before LinkedIn, this whole idea of resumes and like who's a good employee or something was IP and LinkedIn was able to blow that all away, right? And like democratize it, which was kind of bad for a lot of people, but it helped the people, right? And like, therefore, like created more liquidity in the job markets for them, probably helped them make more money, helped make it easier to transition jobs. Like, so like that power dynamic played out in a way that worked. I'm not convinced that like the ecosystem of VPCs and LPs, like to the extent of like, we're going to create the, the, you know, the book face YC style, here's everyone and what they're good at and bad at and why you shouldn't talk to them or should and create like a stick around that is going to play out. Yeah. Is it what LinkedIn did for resumes? I'm curious if you could do for people in certain sectors or, or, you know, companies or, or, or some, and some people have tried Glassdoor as an example, you know, they have their problems obviously, but, uh, yeah, you've, uh, you've, you've got the bruises in those spaces to know that they're, that's very difficult to do. So, so it's unlikely that. Well, I mean, look, and the reality is, is I've generally in my life, I've always made actually the biggest mistakes on things I know too well. Cause I know where all the skeletons are buried. Right. And so like my basic thing on like, is like first blush, yes, of course I want all like, you know, reputation scores for every, you know, uh, LP and like to have a network of trust that I share those with, et cetera. I just don't think that the flow of social capital and financial capital though will like support that right anytime soon, right? So, so a decade from now, do you think that what LinkedIn did for resumes there will be for reputation, like we will have advanced reputation systems or it'll be kind of like what we have today? What do you mean by an advanced reputation system? Oh, just, um, I will, you know, what LinkedIn did for resume, uh, commoditized it, you know, made it so I could just see everyone's like, if I want to know what your reputation is, could I look at a website and get a sense for what people think about you? No, because, well, here's the thing. I don't have, there's no such thing. No human actually has a reputation. You have many reputations based on who you're like, your, my reputation to you is not actually a fixed thing. It's based on, well, who do you trust? And then what do those people think of me? And like, there's a network, there's a whole social capital, a long chain of exchange that goes through. Look, on one hand, again, this is a 20 year problem for me. I think it's fucking fascinating, right? And you go back to the early days of like, you know, friend of friend networks and trust and saying, oh, it's cool because now that I know you're Jimmy's friend, I'll let you sleep on my couch, right? Like there's trust that you can build and like, I get it. Um, 
it won't happen unless there's like an incredibly clear like get laid or get paid style exchange to it you know if that makes sense like if you told me there was a like absent that it's like it's not that it won't casually exist it does exist it 100 percent exists like we all have reputations. They're all pairwise. They're not stored in a single place with a heads up display. They're stored in also in our memories and like in WhatsApp threads. It's a finicky nuanced thing. I'll, I'll let you go. Um, we'll link to the decks in the show notes. Um, people, they're, they're must reads. Also the podcast more or less um, with, uh, with Jess and, and Damon Britt is a, is a must listen. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Eric, thanks. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify.